We are continuing this series of uh, walking through, essentially we're going to walk through the first six chapters of John, uh, not necessarily verse by verse with each chapter. Um, this morning we're going to cover John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Um, so if you have your copy of God's Word, you want to flip over to that, uh, we'll, we'll read that here in just a sec. Um, appreciate, I just want to express my gratitude on behalf of Steph and I and the family as um, Many of you have heard, um, uh, we walked through an unbelievable week last week. Um, last Saturday, um, our family was changed in a, in a blink of an eye. Um, if you didn't know, my cousin was in a terrible car accident. Um, and then it was an up and down roller coaster, we were told. And, and we've learned some more of the details. And, and, and it's way too long to share in a, in a short time. But uh, essentially, um, my cousin's... Uh, Second oldest, um, it's about 13, 14, I'm not sure exactly. Um, we were told he was killed instantly in the car accident. Uh, he was not. Um, he was told, the, the family was told he was dead, so they grieved. Then they airlifted him to a hospital. They found brain activity, so he was alive. Um, he was progressing quite well, so they were told uh, 10 days he'll be out of the hospital. Um, by Wednesday, they realized he had much more severe um, brain damage than they could have imagined, and the pain medication and the blood pressure medication was just losing its effectiveness. And so his blood pressure kept spiking, and by Thursday, the probability of him living was very slim. And um, it was God's mercy and grace that uh, he lived for that long because family was able to say goodbyes. And Friday, they took him off of life support, and within a couple minutes, he passed away. Um, so you can continue to pray specifically for my cousin and his wife and family. Uh, they went home that day, and I can't imagine walking into a house um, with the loss of your child. And God has been so good in giving peace to the family as they just kind of recognize, you know, it, trying to make sense of all this. You know, why God would allow something like this. And, and the reality is that God allows things like this to bring glory and honor to his name. And we come alongside that to try and figure out um, what God is doing. And when we are abiding with him, as we already talked about, those are the ways we learn the reality of what God is doing. So continue to pray a uh, funeral sometime, uh, probably Friday. Uh, Steph and I and the kids will be heading over there. So we appreciate your prayers that that would be a God-honoring service. Um, I fully believe that Zach uh, had a strong faith and knew the Lord, and he's with him today. So... If you would, uh, we're going to go through John chapter 3. If you could stand with me as we read through this, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 21. It starts in John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs uh, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless uh, one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can those things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son, only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, story of a man coming to Jesus. Because in it we have an incredible truth and theology that has been so reassuring. In it we have the hope of humanity. And so, Father, I pray that as we uh, listen to your word this morning, as we look at it, that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would transcend the words of men and that it would come into our hearts and show us. So, Father, we lift you up and we acknowledge your greatness and your glory and your praise. As we pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. Please be seated. I find it uh, very interesting that um, in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, you have two very stark contrasts. We're going to look at chapter 4 next week, but here in chapter 3, you have, you have this man named Nicodemus, and in chapter 4, you have this unnamed woman, and they are night and day different. And I am convinced that both of these accounts, John chose them specifically so that they could contrast each other because we'll see both this week and next week the importance of why both spectrums are acknowledged and brought into an encounter with Jesus so that we can see the reality of how God deals with people. So here we have this story, and we're going to walk through a little bit of it, and we're going to talk about some important uh, aspects of it, and we're going to, we're going to try and, and, and get through all of it if we can. So in this story, I want, to, I want to kind of lay out a couple of things. The first thing I want to do, because we said there's a contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well, the first thing I want to do is show you as we walk through it the importance of Nicodemus, Okay. I want us to see who Nicodemus is, and I want us to see why he is so important and why I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit led Nicodemus to come and talk to Jesus. Because I think if we miss out on the importance of Nicodemus, we miss out on the whole story. 
Okay, so the first thing we want to see is Nicodemus. What do we know about Nicodemus, right? And it would take you all of about five minutes to read all the passages in Scripture about Nicodemus. And I can promise you, you can stay in the book of John to find everything. Okay, he's only ever mentioned in the book of John. He's mentioned three times. Uh, one here in John chapter 3, once more in John chapter 7. I'll encourage you to read these passages maybe later. John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, you have in it that um, some teachers of the law were sent by the Pharisees uh, to go and trap Jesus, and the, the prison guard or the, the temple guard were told to arrest Jesus and bring him back. And, and they came back baffled because Jesus had baffled them. And, and uh, they're saying, well, where were, where's Jesus? You were supposed to arrest him and bring him back. And Nicodemus speaks up and he says, who are we to arrest Jesus without bringing him to a appropriate uh, a moral trial? That's the Nate paraphrase, but I promise you that's essentially what it says. But, you know, Nicodemus is standing up for Jesus saying, hey, we, we can't just arrest this guy without, uh, uh, without a proper trial. And then the only other mention of Nicodemus in John comes from John chapter 13, verses 38 through 42. And in that, you read about how Jesus is taken down from the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus to bury him in a tomb that was his own. And it says that Nicodemus comes with 70, I want you to clearly hear this, 75 pounds of spices. 75 pounds of spices. I don't know about it. What, what you guys have in your spice rack, but that's a lot, okay? I mean, that's a lot. That's a way of honoring Jesus, as a way of, of, of showing his love for this man that we know very little about their relationship. And, and by the way, so what does this tell us about Nicodemus and just basically these three passages? And we're going to talk more specifically about John chapter 3 here. But we, we learn that in John chapter 3 that, that Nicodemus is very earnest to know the truth. We, we learn that Nicodemus was a moral man because he says, hey, you guys can't just arrest him illegally and try him. And we learn that he is a man of great wealth and influence. To be able to purchase 75 pounds would have been an incredible amount of wealth. There are rumors that uh, tradition or that said, you know, Nicodemus was the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's it's fascinating. It's interesting. But as we dive into this passage, I think we can see even more in depth about Nicodemus. So in John chapter three, verse one, it says, uh, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, pause there. And let's see what we see. Number one, we see he was religious, right? Because it says that he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. And we're going to come back to this because I want you to understand the significance of that. It says that he was he, he was probably at first glance, you're not going to see this, but he was an educated man. Why do I say that? Because Nicodemus is a Greek name. Most likely, it would have been very uh, hard for a Jewish person to have a Greek name unless he was Greek-educated and of Greek heritage. He was probably a very educated man. We can also assume that because he was a Pharisee. Uh, it also says that he was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he was not just educated, religious, he was also a man of great influence because he was a ruler. You see, it's starting to add up here. 
But also we know that he came to Jesus by night, which means he was earnest. He wanted to know the truth. He was seeking. He was trying to find out. So if we start to put all this together, I want us to see the person of Nicodemus and acknowledge who he was so that when we approach what he asked Jesus and what the conversation dives into, we can see a couple of significant things. So understand his position, okay? His position. He was a Pharisee. In the time of Jesus here, there would have been about 40,000 rabbis in Israel. 40,000. And of those 40,000, there would have been 22,000 Levites, many of whom would have been priests. And of the 22,000 Levites, many of which were priests, there were 6,000 Pharisees. So the, the scope is starting to narrow down to show you how significant Nicodemus is. 40,000 rabbis, 22,000 Levites, uh, 6,000 Pharisees, and Pharisees had an incredible job. We look at Pharisees today and we say those men were wicked and evil. They weren't necessarily wicked and evil. They had their hearts in the wrong place, but their hearts originally were to uphold and abide and protect the very Word of God. They loved the law. And they wanted to keep the law in such a way that they would write things like the Mishnah, which was this... Um, expansion so we read that god says uh in a very simplified way uh to honor the sabbath six days you have to work and on the seventh day you should rest and, and so the 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 rabbis and the priests and the pharisees would then come in and they would they would take that and they wrote the mishnah which then had 24 volumes about what it meant to keep the sabbath holy because they wanted to do the works of God. They weren't purposing to create traditions and so forth. They really thought their heart was in the right place. I want us to understand that because we look at the Pharisees and we automatically discount them. And so there were 6,000 Pharisees. But of those 6,000, there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. Okay, so we've narrowed it down. 40,000 rabbis, 22,000 Levites, 6,000 Pharisees, and 70 members of the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus was one of those 70. That's how important this guy is. Not only that, but we can also see, as Jesus would later address Nicodemus in this passage, he says something that's very subtle that we can miss. In talking to Nicodemus, he kind of chides him for some of his uh, ignorance, and he says something incredible. He says, are you not the teacher of Israel? It is a definite article, the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus probably was one of the head of the Sanhedrin. It says that he was the teacher of Israel, not a teacher of Israel. If your translation says, uh, I'm telling you, it's incorrect. The definite article there means the. There is some significance here. This man was the best of the best that the Judaism could produce. And I think there's something really important we're going to come to with him. The last thing I want to think of before we move on from Nicodemus' importance is that he came by night. And a lot of times we read that and some people have said that's because he was a coward. 
Some people say uh, uh, various things. He was maybe afraid. He didn't want to let the Pharisees, the other Pharisees, know what he was doing. Um, could it simply be that he wanted uninterrupted conversation with a very busy man? Before we automatically say Nicodemus was a coward and afraid, could it just simply be that he knew that Jesus all day was busy teaching and people wanted his attention, and maybe he just wanted an uninterrupted conversation? Maybe he was checking up on behalf of the Pharisees who this man was doing incredible miracles all around the world, in Jerusalem, and Israel, who he really was. So he came to Jesus at night because he earnestly wanted to know the truth. He saw what was going on. And notice what he says. He says, we know, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. What is that? We could speculate some incredible things. Maybe he had spent time in conversation with uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And they're sitting there wondering, well, maybe this guy is different. Maybe there's something about him. Uh, maybe there's something going on. And, and there is tradition that says that uh, Nicodemus would later live with Gamaliel, who, if you know who Gamaliel is from the book of Acts, he's the one that stood up and said, hey, guys, uh, I'm sorry, in, in the end of John, uh, he says, if, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then his whole uh, uh, following will disappear after he's gone. But if he is, you're messing with the work of God. So maybe Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Gamaliel all had this conversation, and they're like, maybe there's something to this guy. Hey, Nicodemus, why don't you go find out? Who knows? But what I want us to understand about the importance of Nicodemus and how it's going to apply to this passage is this. Nicodemus represents the best of Jewish people intellectually, religiously, morally, and socially, and he wasn't enough. He wasn't enough. So oftentimes, we sit here and we look to our religious leaders. And if I could go another sermon without hearing a quote about John Piper said this, I could live a lifetime that would be happiness. I'm sure John's a great guy, but he's not Jesus. And we idolize some of these guys. And they are the best of what the world has presented. And they're not Jesus. And we can come to Jesus to find the truth. And that is the only place we ought to be seeking the truth. It is okay. By the way, I'm not criticizing and saying you should never listen to one of these guys' sermons, okay? I want to be careful of that. But the reality is, the word is that we should be going to Jesus for the answers. And you don't need another professor or teacher to tell you the truth of who Jesus is. You have the word of God. And it is fully sufficient. Fully sufficient. And I applaud Nicodemus in that he wanted answers and he went to Jesus. So that's the importance of Nicodemus. Next, I want us to look at the insight of Nicodemus. So it says that Nicodemus goes to, to Jesus and it says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Despite being the best of what Judaism has to offer, there seems to be an understanding in Nicodemus that he doesn't have enough. Why do I say that? Because you notice what the next line says. Verse 3, the very beginning, first two words. Jesus answered him. I didn't see a question. Did you? Jesus answered him. Wait a minute, I didn't realize... Nicodemus had asked him a question. 
It's because Jesus knew his heart, and we want to talk about this in just a little bit. Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus, that Nicodemus came to him, much like the rich young ruler uh, from Matthew chapter 19, who comes to Jesus, and, and what does he say? He says, uh, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And he quotes from the last six commandments, and, and the rich young ruler says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Because you know what? No matter how much we religiously and, 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 and diligently seek to obey the commandments, we will always find in our heart of hearts that there is something missing because we know it's not enough. And so Nicodemus comes and we can sense the heart of Jesus knowing the heart of Nicodemus as Nicodemus comes to him and he says, Hey, we know you're from God because we see the miracles you do. And Jesus answers him, and he tells him something amazing. Jesus would declare to the crowds, as, as, and just to emphasize this, in Matthew chapter 5, he declares to the crowds as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, you see those Pharisees? Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so as Nicodemus comes to Jesus, I believe wholeheartedly that on Nicodemus' heart, he wanted to know because he knew deep down inside that all of his religious work was not enough. Brothers and sisters, coming to church faithfully, regularly, is not enough. Brothers and sisters, putting money in the tithe box every single week is not enough. Neighborlink projects are not enough. Praying every day is not enough. What is enough? Jesus. It's always enough. Always enough. And so we have this insight of Nicodemus, and we have an ignorance here, because we, despite being the best of what Judaism had to offer, the teacher of Israel, he didn't know the answer. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's room and be born? Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on into a very deep, rich theology. You see, Nicodemus believed probably what most Jews believed, that birth into Judaism by ancestry was enough. I mean, the Pharisees said to Jesus, we have Abraham as our father. And they believed that a Messiah was coming and that the Messiah would usher in the new kingdom. And Jesus says, huh? -uh. What Jesus says here, I want you to understand, is so radical to a Pharisee, it would have blown their mind. Because they believed that birth into the nation of Israel was birth into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your physical birth is not enough. You need to be born again. And so the conversation would go and Nicodemus totally misses and doesn't understand. And so he asks lots of questions. Notice his questions. How can I enter into the kingdom of God? How can this be? I don't understand. And here's what's so beautiful, because when we approach 
trying to understand who Jesus is and what he is and what his purpose is. He knows our hearts, and he can speak to us in such a beautiful way. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus seeking the truth. He doesn't outright ask the question, but Jesus already knows the question, and he invites Nicodemus into a deep, rich truth. And that's what we want to spend the rest of our time on after we understand the importance here of who this man was and what he has to offer. Because next week we're going to look at a person who knows from the very beginning that they have nothing worthy to offer. And yet Jesus approaches in the very same way. So listen to what, what we have here, and, and we'll walk through this as, as, as much as we can, but it is so deep and rich. Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a second time into his mother's room and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And then Nicodemus is going to ask again, how can these things be? And Jesus would go on and explain some more. The care of Jesus, he answers without even being asked. And he knew the inward heart. And isn't that the truth of Jesus that he knows before we even ask? So Jesus offers a correction here. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not about physical birth or physical performance, is it? He says you must be born again. That is something that nobody can do. Entrance into the kingdom. So there's two very important principles that are unwavering points of theology that we must ingrain in our mind. Number one, that to enter into the kingdom of God, your flesh has to be born again in a way that your spirit is transformed into God's family. Okay? I, I want us to clearly understand that what we are is never enough and it has to be radically changed. That's what Jesus says. And the second thing that he says, because he says, I want you to notice the word and you might underline it. He says, you must be born again. There's no option. You must be born again. So what you are has to be radically changed because you have to be born into the family of God. And the second aspect that he's going to dive into is that it has to be only by the Spirit of God. You can't even do it yourself. Very, very important points. And you can add a third one to it, which is it has to be by faith. You must be born again. It has to be by the Spirit. It can't just simply be moral renewal or rehabilitation. And Nicodemus is baffled by this. It requires... Uh, faith. So, so Jesus says, uh, here's the key to entrance in. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. There are so many uh, beliefs in what that means. Born of water. Does that mean baptism? Does that mean you have to be baptized and uh, be born of the Spirit? Um, there's nothing in Scripture that seems to agree with that. Okay? Baptism is not necessity for salvation. So what does it possibly mean? It could mean some people say that that's just another term for uh, water because we are, when we are born, we are in the um, uh, 
amniotic sac, you know, that there's water there. And so some people say that's just reference to the physical, and that could very well be supported because in the very next verse, Jesus talks about being born of the flesh and of the spirit. It could very well be. Some people say, well, the water there is the, the, the word of God. You have to be born from the truth of hearing the word of God. And that when you believe the word of God, you are also born of the water and of the spirit. That the, the water reveals truth to you and that the Holy Spirit renews you. Very valid possibility. Another possibility is that, um, that the word water, oftentimes in Hebrew uh, traditions, referenced a cleansing, a washing. And so we have to be cleansed of our sin by the Holy Spirit. And so there is a washing and a Holy Spirit birth. And so it is one. It's a good possibility. The reality is, regardless of its definition and meaning, Nicodemus would have understood this concept that you had to be born of water and spirit. And, and what we need to see in it is this idea that there has to be a radical transformation because you cannot just physically be birthed on your own into the family of God. And so Jesus talks about this and he, and he says, and Nicodemus says, well, how can this be? And Jesus says, it's by the spirit. And, you know, we could spend hours talking about this concept of the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes the reality is we don't see the wind right we don't see the spirit but what do we see we see the effects of it right so you ask well how do you know if the holy spirit has been in your in your life and transform you what are the effects in your life we don't just base everything off of, of what we see in people. Uh, I, I will venture to, 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 to step out there and say, um, when people say, and I've heard this before, that we are called to be fruit inspectors, that that is a very unbiblical uh, idea. We are not called to be judging other people's fruit. Okay, Jesus was talking specifically about teachers. He said, if you want to evaluate a teacher, a biblical teacher, are they doing what they say? We're not called to go around judging other Christians. That's why Jesus also says very shortly after he says that, he says, don't be judging one another. But there is a reality. We should see the works of the Spirit in our life. So you say, well, how do I know I'm born again? John would later write in his epistles a huge detail. You want to know if you are in the Spirit? Do you have love and truth? Those are the DNA characteristics, and, and it, they are the result of the Holy Spirit in us. And so we look at this passage, and Jesus says, how can this, Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus says, only by the Holy Spirit. And he finishes off this section with this kind of vague thing to most of us. He says, uh, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Why? Because if we told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if we tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses has lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is an incredible analogy. That Jesus uses. 
So if you turn back to Numbers 21, I'm not going to have you do it necessarily today, right now, but if you, some point in time, I'd encourage you to do that, turn back to Numbers 21, you can read this story, and so basically the story goes like this in summary, um, that the nation of Israel had been brought out of Egypt, right, they're wandering in the wilderness, and God provides food for them, right, He provides manna for them, and so they're fed every day, they collect their manna, and they eat, and, and eventually they get sick of it, and it says that they begin to grumble and complain, they say, Moses, why'd you bring us out here to die we're sick of this manna and they're grumbling and they're complaining and God says I'm tired of their grumbling and complaining and he sends out vipers into the camp and they begin to bite people and people begin to die and the people cry out and they say we realize that our grumbling and our complaining was wrong God have mercy on us forgive us for what we have done and God hears their prayer, and he says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take and make this bronze, and it's kind of this weird story, Numbers 21. If you've ever seen the medical thing on a hospital, this is where it comes from. I bet you didn't know that. Maybe you did. But there's a bronze snake. You ever see it? You ever wonder why there's a bronze snake? It's because our hospitals had biblical origins. And, and they put this bronze snake on a pole, and Moses takes and puts it in the middle of the camp, and anybody who gets bit by the snake, all they have to do is look at the snake, and they're instantly healed. <laughs> Why? Why? Right? I mean, we look at that story, and we're like a snake on a pole, and you have to look at it. And can you imagine, by the way, being in the camp of Israel? Can you imagine the person that gets bit by a snake, and then they're, and they're withering and dying right there on the ground, and their friend comes up and says, all you got to do, man, is look at the snake. And they're like, no, 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 that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I'm not going to do it. Brothers and sisters, that is the most perfect analogy and picture of what was to come. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, in a little while... You who are dying, bitten by the viper of sin and hell and damnation, have one recourse of action, that I will be lifted up on a pole. And you must look to me for your healing, the healing of the nations. And so Jesus, knowing that Nicodemus loved the law and knowing Nicodemus' understanding of the, the Torah, he would have used this analogy and said, guess what, Nicodemus, as the serpent was lifted up and brought salvation to all who would look to it, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up and anyone who would look to me will find hope and salvation. What an incredible picture. An amazing picture as Moses lifted up in the wilderness the serpent so the Son of Man would. And so Jesus, after sharing this, this correction of theology that it's not about your physical birth into a nation, but it's a birth that must happen through the Holy Spirit into the family of God, and it only comes through the Holy Spirit and the work that I will do on the cross. And then Jesus begins to share the cause of why he came. And this passage that is quoted so much and so often, it is such a sweet and unbelievable passage. The cause for Jesus coming 
He says, is this God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? This passage brings me hope and joy every time I read it because it is the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if we can't see the beauty, the simplicity and the glory of this passage, then this word means nothing to us. It is an incredible passage. It's incredible for for three reasons I want to point out to you. Verses 16 through 21, it is simple. I want you to understand how simple the gospel is. It is so simple. It is this. God loved. God gave. Christ died. Christ saves. We believe. We receive. There is no work that we have to do. God loved us so much that He's gave His only Son. And Christ loves so much that He willingly died on a cross for us. And the Holy Spirit awakens that truth in us and it says that to all who believe, receive. The simplicity of the gospel is this, that Jesus came with one purpose. We talked about this last week when we talked about Jesus' hour not yet coming. His hour represents the one thing that he came to do, that Jesus was born to die. That was his purpose in life. His name from the very beginning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says that the angel said that you should name him Jesus because Jesus means he who saves, Yeshua saves. That was his purpose in life, designated from birth. Then Jesus would later say in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' only purpose in life was your redemption. Your redemption. That he came for one purpose, his one hour was that he would die on a cross to redeem mankind. Because he knew that mankind could not. He knew that Nicodemus would come to him and say, all the works of the law I have kept like the rich young ruler, but there is something in my heart that tells me it is lacking. And there are so many people that attend church every single week that are godly in their minds and that they are offering all kinds of religious experience and religious works and religious things, and yet in their mind they know and in their heart they believe that there is something lacking. Because they have never believed that Jesus is enough. And so Nicodemus who comes and he was this man of 40,000, probably the one teacher of Israel. And he knew it wasn't enough. And Jesus says, here's the simplicity. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish have eternal life why do we quote this verse why do you why do we have on 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 sports uh, activities they hold up the sign john three sixteen. why is this the verse that so many people when they only have a minute to share the gospel they share because it is the simplicity of the gospel in a nutshell it is the whole truth that god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and therefore we who believe shall not perish but have eternal life that's simplicity Not only is it simplicity, this paragraph is my security. Notice what it says. Verse 16 is 
We, we've already read verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. You know what, Christians, as we go out and share the truth of the gospel, why is the world always saying all you do is come around and condemn us? We don't need to condemn anyone. That's what this passage says. It says they were already condemned. Jesus didn't even come to condemn. Yet so many Christians come with the word and thump it on people and tell them why they're so wrong. And here's what the word says. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is what? Underline it. Not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What's the difference? One acted upon it and their life changed. The other did not and they still stand condemned. Brothers and sisters, Paul declared with authority in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, if you believe you are no longer condemned. That's security. Security. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to finish this up real quick. Not only is it security, it's satisfaction. It is complete. No extra is needed. Condemnation only remains for those who reject. Here's the truth. God sent his son not to condemn the world, but to provide a way out of condemnation. And it says that Jesus came in John chapter 1. It says he came to his own and they did not receive him. Yet to all who believe, he gives the right to become children of God. And here in John chapter 3, he goes on, he says, here's the truth, light came into the world, and men love darkness, and because their works were evil, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There is no extra needed. So here's the two truths I want you to take away from this. This truth, this whole section, conquers doubt it conquers doubt so many christians walk through life and they're like i don't know i am afraid of this or that brothers and sisters what what can we possibly be afraid of what is there that we can be afraid of romans 8 34 says who is it that condemns it's jesus who can condemn and what did jesus do he died for us so that you are no longer condemned who could possibly condemn us no one is the answer for those who are in Christ, because condemnation no longer exists. What could we possibly be afraid of? Not condemnation. We can't be afraid of correction. We should rejoice in it because we are reconciled to God. And so when Jesus comes, it's not even the correction. In fact, we're told that we ought to love that we are corrected because it shows that we are his sons and daughters. Not condemnation, not correction, and not a loss of connection to Jesus because he will never leave us nor forsake us. When I read this passage, I am washing away doubts and fears. And when you are sitting here today and you are struggling with doubts and fears, come to this passage and find the truth. And the truth is that Jesus has bought you and there is nothing that you should ever be afraid of. And lastly and most importantly, this truth conquers death. Friday, I'll go and, and watch a family member being buried. But we rejoice because this is not the end. It is the beginning. Philippians, Paul tells us that he is torn because he wants to be 
with Christ. And he says, death is gain. Brothers and sisters, what if we could live where we understand that the worst thing that could happen to us is the best thing that could happen to us? What if we could live in such a way that when our child in a heartbeat could be taken from us, that we could go from a family of five to a family of four in five seconds, and we say, praise the Lord, because now He is with Jesus. I wonder how that would impact our daily life. My prayer, as I look over trying to figure out what the purpose in his death is, is that we would not forsake the pain and sorrow because we forget the purpose of what God is in the world doing. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. And what are we doing to proclaim that? How are we showing the Nicodemuses of the world that there is something that they're missing. There are so many directions we could go with this passage, and I feel like I didn't even do it half the justice that it deserves. But here's an encounter of a man who, for all intents and purposes, according to the world, was the best the world had to offer. And when he came to Jesus, he realized there was something lacking. And that thing that was lacking was Jesus himself. And I pray that as we walk through life, we would remember that Jesus has bought us and that by his death and resurrection, because he loved us and its simplicity in the gospel, that there is great hope and joy and that one day we will forever abide with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the source of truth. And Father, what an example that we have in Nicodemus who was willing to go to you. And Father, I do pray that our hearts would be that when we have the questions that we can't find the answers to, we would go to Jesus and we would find that the truth is always the same. God loved the world. God gave his son. Christ came. Christ died. And if we believe, we can receive. Father, may our hearts be assured in the truth of the gospel that it is sufficient, it is satisfactory, that it is satisfying to our longing hearts. And Father, may our hearts be changed and transformed in such a way that when we leave from here, our hearts would burden and Father, if it's just that we would plead on our knees before you for our families and our friends and our neighbors, Lord, I pray that if, if that's the one thing we walk away from here with, that we might go home and realize that life is so much more than self. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored in it. That you would be glorified. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.